Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is the show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our guest today is the author of A Left for Itself, David Swift. Welcome to Trigonometry. Hi, lads. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. Listen, it's a fantastic book. Uh, thank you so much for sending it to us. We really enjoyed reading it. Before we get into it, just tell everybody, who are you? How are you where you are? What has been the journey that brings you sitting uh, here with a massive backdrop of books behind you? So giving you lots of authority there. Uh, we, we've just got a blank canvas behind us, which uh, is an accurate reflection of the state of our minds. Uh, yeah, so I'm, um, I suppose I did a PhD a few years ago uh, in history. My old background academically has been history. And yeah, like a lot of people, a lot of young struggling academics, uh, I'm on the sort of job market and it's not looking great exactly. You know, there's a real um, surplus of people with PhDs and not enough jobs to go around. So my sort of second uh, interest, if you like, was thinking, could I be a, a sort of more popular writer, you know, who wrote sort of acad- uh, sort of scholarly books, but with a more sort of popular focus or popular audience anyway. And yeah, you know, I'm from Liverpool originally. Um don't necessarily sound like it that much nowadays, actually, but there we are. And, you know, something that struck me a lot when I was growing up uh, is the sort of the disconnect between, say, the, the left-wing politics of many people in Liverpool, many working-class people in Liverpool, and, say, the left-wing politics of, say, the contemporary Labour Party, right? So mm. when I went to university, for example, everyone was very left-wing there, but usually in quite a different way from the sort of people that I grew up around. So that's the sort of thing really that sparked my interest in the um, the sort of the difference between the the modern left as it is in Britain and America and, and Western democracies and the sort of people that the modern left is actually fighting for, or at least says that it's fighting for. And when you say the modern left, let's just clarify that because when people use the word left, invariably it means a million different things, just as when people use the, the term the right. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm using it in quite an open sense, right? So for, for me, left is anyone really sort of including Tony Blair, right up into way past Jeremy Corbyn to sort of people who think Jeremy Corbyn was a Blairite sellout. Uh, I'm <laughs> saying people who, exactly. So I don't just mean liberals, by the way, right? Mm. You know, in the sort of mm. sense of being, you know, a sort of, um, I don't know, small state personal freedom type person, Nick Clegg, David Laws, you know, Orange Book liberal. I don't really mean liberals. I mean sort of socialist left, economic left. And again, mm-hmm. I include or I assume that when we're talking about socialist left, I mean people who are also left wing on, say, race and gender and, and LGBT mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And what has been the chart, the evolution for us, David, over the, you know, the, the, particularly the second half of the 20th century in, in Britain and the United States in terms of the transformation of the left? Because I would put it to you based on our conversations with past guests, people like Paul Embry, William Clouston, others on the left, that, uh, or what you might call the left, I don't know if William Clouston is on the left, but anyway, my point is uh, the sort of people that used to vote for the Labour Party, actually France is probably a good example of this as well, um, don't seem to be the sort of people that are driving those parties uh, that are choosing their candidates, that are, are forming the, the bulk of their support at the moment. So, the word has stayed the same, but the meaning is, seems to have changed quite dramatically. Uh, so talk to us about the evolution, because there's a, a little interesting tidbit in your book about how actually women used to to overwhelmingly vote conservative, something <laughs> that now would be uh, difficult mm. to imagine. Yeah, well, I suppose there's a, f- there's, there's a few different things going on, right? So and, and w- one of these processes, uh, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm different to Paul Embry in this regard, but one of these processes actually thinks a good thing, right? So the left or the Labour Party, both in the UK and also actually in the US since like the New Deal, uh, Roosevelt era, has shifted from being about a, a certain kind of white working class man, right? And not just any working class person, but somebody who works in heavy industry, somebody who's in a trade union, right? That's what the left used to be 70 years ago. It didn't have much to say about women. It didn't have much to say about uh, black people in the US or immigrants in the UK, or in fact, actually different kinds of working class men who weren't in unions or did other kinds mm. of jobs, like, I don't know, taxi drivers or being self-employed or whatever. Um, and so actually, I think that this evolution now where the left is genuinely paying attention to all of these other very important things, which I think are important, like race and gender and so on, is actually a good thing. However, at the same time, there's been a, a sort of concomitant process whereby, firstly, um, 
the these sort of people, as you say, who are uh, behind, say, the no- people who get nominated to stand for elections, behind people who make decisions at the leadership of the left, the public face on politics and uh, talk shows and so on, that has changed very much. And that has actually gone to people who are, you know, really unrepresentative of, of, of anyone other than themselves, right? It's not necessarily that, you know, your average uh, black or American Britain, uh, you know, is on the talk shows or writing the leader columns or even wielding power at the top of the Labour Party. So it's actually given rise to a very specific um, kind of people who really don't represent anyone. And this is almost where the title of the book comes from, a left for itself. Like they're there for themselves and, and their own specific group of people. And I think the problem here is that the the sort of site of radicalization, if you like, yeah, which is it's no longer the uh, the shop floor of a factory. It's no longer um, necessarily people who are being overtly discriminated against themselves. It's actually people who are acting out of altruism and sympathy with other people, right? The site mm-hmm. of radicalization now is the university campus. And in a way, it's fine. You know, I've got nothing against altruism. I've got nothing against people uh, selflessly trying to act to help uh, people less fortunate than themselves. That's all right. But the problem is when the sort of, you know, the majority of the left, the majority of left-wing activists, the majority of left Twitter, the hellhole that is left Twitter, when the majority of these people are not trans people or black people or white working class people, when the majority of them are, you know, fairly well-to-do middle-class white people, then I think this is where the problem comes in, right? Because there's a real disconnect between the actual foot soldiers and activists on the one hand and the sort of people they claim to be fighting for on the other. And don't you think that actually, and maybe this is me and my own prejudice coming to the fore, but don't you feel that when, you know, somebody who is, comes from a very well-off, privately educated background you know, tend to be white and upper middle class and they start to say that they speak for minorities. Isn't this quite patronising, to be brutally honest? Oh, yeah. I mean, 100%. When someone says that they speak for minorities, etc., you know, um, it's almost like they're, they're taking other people's struggle to, to to make themselves seem more interesting or even to empower themselves, really, you know, mm. to, get, to give themselves, a, a, I don't know, media coverage, to give themselves kudos or whatever even to get themselves tweet you know retweets and likes and whatever when someone's doing it in that sense yeah i think that's wrong in any sense however if somebody wants to you know be a be an ally as the phrase is you know be a, a foot soldier in a movement for other people i don't think that that's necessarily wrong right i mean if you look at black lives matter in the u.s irrespective of what you think of black lives matter in the u.s at least it's led by black people right mm. so i think if white people want to help Black Lives Matter in the US, then, you know, all power to them, right? I mean, you might disagree with the objectives or whatever, but I don't think that that is necessarily patronizing. I think it is patronizing if white people want to, yeah, as you say, sort of like speak for black people, you know what I mean? Mm. And sort of like act as their sort of representatives and like they're the warriors for them rather than mm. rather than taking a backseat and being foot soldiers, uh, you know, to their greater cause. David, and how has this happened? Because this process of transformation, which has led uh, in your assessment to a group of people who only represent themselves being the public voice of the left increasingly. So people like Owen Jones, Ash Sarkar, Aaron Bastani, etc. in this country, certainly. Uh, I mean, I think Owen Jones probably arguably does represent a, a, a sentiment of people on the left, but you know, the Ashsakas and Aaron Bastani's people like that in particular, if they represent no one, how, how have they come to the position that they're in? I mean, it's not so much that they represent no one. It's that they definitely represent a group of people. Uh, I would say it's a quite a specific group of people, though, and not the people that they perhaps think they're speaking on mm. behalf of or, or they think that they're representing. I mean, I think what's happened here is you know, there's all sorts of forces going on. On the one hand, you've got the decline of uh, you know traditional industries, the decline of trade unionism, particularly private sector trade unionism. You know, that's one thing by itself. Uh, at the other hand, you have this massive prolifer- proliferation, excuse me, of university education, mm-hmm. uh, and also, unfortunately, at the same time, a decline in uh, the prestige uh, of, of of a university degree, and also in the a decline of university quality jobs. Right? You have this surplus, as I was saying before, about you know, there's so many PhDs, not enough academic, uh, not enough academic positions, and at the same time, you have so many people with BAs, with MAs who aren't able to get the sort of job commensurate with that kind of degree, the sort of job they thought they would get. So they're a bit sort of stuck, really. And, and what they all have internet access and they all have social media accounts. And this is where you get this uh, this particular kind of left coming from, I think. 
And they, they seem to me that they wield an almost disproportionate power when you look at the, you know, the people who agree with them and who they represent. How has this been allowed to happen? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? So there's this quote I use in the book by the sociologist Manuel Castell. So Manuel Castell said, when people can't control the world around them, they shrink the world to, to the size of their world, to something they can't control. Or Timon, the meerkat from The Lion King, put it more succinctly when he said, when the world turns its back on you, you turn your back on the world, right? And this is what's happened with a certain section of the left, because they're actually completely shut out of power, aren't they? You know, I mean, even the mainstream sort of new Labour, Labour Party hasn't won an election in this country in, in 10 years. And obviously, many of the sort of people I'm talking about in the book very much reject uh, new Labour. Again, in the U.S., um, you know, if Bernie Sanders wins, sorry, Bernie, excuse me, if Joe Biden wins in November, mm. okay, great for the, the Democrats. But again, this is very sort of mainstream Democrat, and, you know, they're still shut out in many lower levels of power in the Senate, in, you know, state governorships, state congresses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in terms of the board, in, you know, in terms of actual real economic change, right? So you could say, uh, you know, the woke capitalism and, and the boardrooms of major companies uh, evolving on certain issues, but not really. You know, it, it's stylistic, aesthetic things that they're saying. They're not going to give away all their wealth, you know, to, to, to the poor or anything like that, right? So in many ways, it's uh, it's because, I think, on the one hand, the left, however you want to constitute it, right, the broader left or quite a narrow left, because it has so little power in real life, it has so little political power, it has so little economic power, that on the very in the very few spheres in which it does have influence, such as social media, such as academia, it then uh, tries to you know exercise complete power, right? Because that's the one that's the one thing it can do. You know, I don't know if you're a football fan, but I remember years and years ago when um, Pep Guardiola and Jose Mourinho were at Barcelona and and um, Real Madrid respectively, and uh, Pep Guardiola going on a rant, Pep Guardiola going on a rant in a press conference saying, you know, in this room he's the fucking chief. You know, this is his. This is where he's the master, actually, not in the football field, but in the press room. And I think it's a similar thing happening with the left in a way, you know. It's because they don't have any real power that they try to uh, sort of monopolize power in, in these very specific spheres of social media and the media. But I'll see a question as to how that happened. I think a problem is that so many people are, um, they, they are really in fear of being outflanked to their left, right? Mm. Because so many people, and in a country like the UK where, I think like almost 90% of the UK is white, right? So likewise, the left, academia, uh, media, and so on, are overwhelmingly white people, overwhelmingly middle-class people. And so we're in, you know, we're not black, we're not trans, we're not Palestinian. And we're Speak for yourself, mate. Exactly, yeah. I mean, yeah exactly, yeah. <laughs> if you listen to our fans, Francis has got some potential lesbianism going on just about oh, by his appearance. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. But so, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so diplomatic. Just skip over that that, that problematic joke and, and move on to something else. Fantastic. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, so you know, <laughs> I mean, you may need this in a certain way to entitle you to speak on certain issues. Yeah, and I have to say, listen, I am a lesbian, and mm. soon enough, you may be able to self-define as a lesbian. And unfortunately, people Cheers. might have to just exactly go along with it. Soon. You never <laughs> know. So it's because of this, right? It's because so many of us we don't have the almost credibility that actually being black or Asian or trans or Palestinian or being gay or being dead poor would grant us. So we're terrified, or some on the left, of being outflanked to the left. So we don't feel as though we can stand up to these people. We don't feel as though we can say to, you know, the Sarkars or Bastanis or Joneses, you're talking shite, actually, you know, you don't speak for anyone. Because we don't necessarily feel that we have the sort of demographic credibility to say that. Do you think there's a, a, a kind of morality gap there? Because, the, the, you know, as I think many people have articulated in the past, the the right's view of the left is that the left are stupid and naive and the left's view of the right is that the right is evil and so there is this kind of accepted dogma i suppose that uh if you want to become more moral you move to the left if you want to become more pragmatic you move to the right and therefore to be outflanked to your left is to 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 kind of concede that you are a less moral person and we've all kind of bought into this is that part of it I think there's something to that, yeah. I think definitely, uh, and, and this is a, more true on some issue, uh, some issues than others. For example, like for, um, immigration, which I'm not sure will come up later, but um, you know, I would be much more comfortable 
at say an academic conference mm. saying that I wanted to abolish the NHS and basically abolish income tax as well, right? Because whilst virtually everyone in the audience or everyone there would disagree with me, they would at least think that was a legitimate political position for a right winger to put across. I mean, I don't want to do these things, by the way, but there we are. Um, mm. But I wouldn't feel comfortable saying, I think we should like have no immigration, right? Which again, I definitely don't think, by the way. And I want to make that that's clear. not the way we're going to clip it, Dave. I just want to make it clear to you now. Yeah, fair enough. That, that's going to be the headline of. That's going to be the title, mate. David Swift, no immigration, no NHS, no NHS, no immigration, no income tax. Well, a perfect world, according to David Swift. That's it. So, but this is it, right? So, you know, it's unlike say taxation or, or, or health and welfare spending. Um, immigration restrictions is not even seen as a legitimate issue on, for many people on the left. Uh, and so, yeah, I think there's a certain thing to that about, about morality and about how it may be perceived actually as being immoral to have certain opinions rather than just political opinions that you can agree or disagree with and people are entitled to have them even if you don't agree with them. Having said that at the same time, you know, it's so easy for the right to just to, to ape these opinions without actually following it through by doing anything. And get away with it. You know, you look at the way uh, mainstream Tory MPs now talk about all sorts of issues from, uh, I don't know, gay marriage to the environment to even Black Lives Matter to immigration to crime and punishment. It's very easy for them, actually, to to adopt uh, such many of the language of the left on these issues without doing a damn thing about it. I mean, you do have certainly with Boris Johnson's cabinet because he has to sort of, you know, he doesn't have many people to choose from. And so he has had to give births to the likes of Pretty Patel and Jacob B. Smog, who do actually go against this and do actually say things that most uh, career-minded Tory MPs wouldn't say necessarily. Mm. But I think this is a thing as well, actually, that the right can just, and this is a problem with the state of the left, that it's just so easy for the right to adopt this language and say the right thing and use the right buzzwords and not do a damn thing to actually help anyone. Uh, and so this is the problem when it becomes more about morality than actual change. It's an interesting point that you're making, mm. because if you look at, you know, Pretty Patel, considered to be very hard line uh, by people, uh, treated as almost like some kind of, you know, evil witch by many and, you know, considered to have a very strong position in immigration. But actually, she you talk about being outflanked to the left. She's being outflanked to the right at, at this moment in time, because you have the illegal crossings. Uh, people coming into this country and you know Nigel Farage is going why is Priti Patel putting these people up in hotels and allowing this to happen so th it's almost like he's been he's calling the bluff that the, the, the conservatives have have been putting up by parroting some of of, of what you might call more left-wing positions yeah well I think there's you know the old Marxist idea of the base and the superstructure right that you have like a sort of uh, objective material base which has this uh, political, cultural superstructure attached to it. I think in, in many, in politics nowadays, a similar thing is going on in that you have the actual reality, right? You have real life, uh, you have people's, you have public opinion on, say, the death penalty or immigration. And then at the same time, you have uh, sort of what is uh, permissible to say, you know, the mainstream of politics, the mainstream of policy. And the connection between the two is very interesting and often very tenuous, right? So, you know, uh, the death penalty was abolished in the UK, well, 1967, I think, or 65, possibly. And yet, for the next sort of 50 plus years, the vast majority of public, or at least the slender majority of public opinion, wanted to have the death penalty, wanted to have capital punishment. But it didn't matter, right? Because there was no connection between that sort of material desire for, for capital punishment and, and what was going actually going to happen in politics. And again, with immigration, you know, for... And for nearly all of the past 70 years, I mean, as long as there's been records, as far as I'm aware, there's been a disconnect between public opinion on immigration and what the politicians were willing to even consider um, what you would would even discuss in polite society. So and I think the exact same thing's happening here. Right. So, yes, there are these uh, illegal crossings going on, people landing in Britain illegally, not going through the you know, legal immigration channels. And yes, Nigel Farage and many people, you know, much worse than Nigel Farage are going to make hay out of this to a certain extent. But who cares? It's not going to make any difference. It's a, it, it, that, that's the sort of reality in the base. But actually, there's this sort of political superstructure on top, which has decided that um, it's just <laughs> it's not really a priority. It's not enough of a priority to actually make the, the, you know, the mainstream politicians in the Tory party change their opinion or do anything about it. Right. And, and, and this is the thing I think 
I mean, people say this about, you know, before the Brexit referendum, and then actually when the Brexit referendum happened, it suddenly gave that opportunity, right, for this sort of frustration or movement on the, on the base to actually affect the political superstructure. But I'm not sure if, if anything like that's going to happen again, especially with first past the post. You know, if we mm. lived in a different system with PR, you can imagine Farage or a Tommy Robinson figure or whoever actually really feeding on this, like the AFD in Germany, really feeding on this and, 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 and winning seats and stuff. But with first past the post, they can't see that happen. And Dave, we've been talking now about the left. And is it especially that type of the left? They're so interested in being moral. They're so interested in being right that really they don't seem particularly interested in winning elections. Is that fair? Yeah, I think, I mean, they would say, oh, we are actually. It's just, you know, uh, either, we, you know, <laughs> the way we want to win it, you don't think it's what's going to win, but. We will, we will win if you follow this advice. Or, yes, we want to win, but not at any cost, right? Mm. And I think this is the problem because, you know, it's not a binary, right? You don't need the phrase I, that I saw a lot in January and, and, you know, when after Corbyn was going away and Keir Starmer looked like he was storming to victory in the Labour leadership election. The phrase I often saw was throwing X under the bus, right? Throwing Palestinians under the bus, throwing trans people under the bus, whatever, you know. You don't have to do that. Like, you don't have to actually... Uh, compromise on your values to win elections. You just need to be a bit savvy about it. I mean, look at the Tories. You know, the Tories don't go, <laughs> the Tories don't literally say, listen, you know, we don't really believe in the NHS and actually we're going to, you know, underfund it or whatever. And in fact, you know, they might not. They say, oh, we love the NHS. Or, oh, you can trust us with the NHS. You know, they don't go and make Jacob Rees mogg leader the way Labour made Jeremy Corbyn leader. Mm. Uh, you know, they make sure during election time that Jacob E. Smog was nowhere to be seen. <laughs> you know, uh, see, this is the thing, right? You don't act, and I'm not saying you need to deceive the electorate, although arguably that's what the Tory party does. But Labour doesn't have to say, we're going to do all these radical things uh, on, say, I don't know, trans rights or whatever. We're going to have a much more critical position of Israel. You know, you, you don't actually have to go out and, and, and make your whole campaign about that, right? You can actually campaign on issues that people care about on issues where Labour's position is quite popular, like on the NHS, for example, or on, uh, say, taxation policy or nationalisation. Well, economics. I mean, Labour Labour's economic policies were incredibly popular. It, mm. It's almost a tremendous achievement that they managed to lose the last election while offering a manifesto that was incredibly popular with people. This, I mean, this is the difficulty. Yeah? And I think one of the, I mean, obviously there's Brexit and all that, and there's, there's having Corbyn as your leader when somebody <laughs> is so unpopular uh, and you have this guy as the figurehead. Uh, so there's that. But the problem is also the Tories can just pick and choose bits of that. You know, the Tories shifted to the left. Uh, you know, Boris Johnson said oh, he's going to build all these new hospitals. He's going to spend so much money. And then actually there's not enough difference between them economically. But the Tories have much more popular cultural policies or at yeah. least, you know, Labour are shooting themselves in the foot with some of these policies, which, which turn people off. So I don't necessarily think there's this like binary or dichotomy between, on the one hand, sticking true to your values and your moral positions and winning elections. You can actually do them both. You just have to be savvy about it. And the fact that so many of these hobbyist left people, as I call them, are just unwilling to do that. Like they're not even willing to just keep quiet for a few months, <laughs> win power and then change things shows you that for them, it does seem to be about like the, the identity itself. Like that actually for them, just keeping quiet about trans rights and Palestinian rights for six months to win elections and then do lots of radical stuff on trans and Palestinian rights. They think, oh, no, that would defy the whole point. The whole point <laughs> is to identify ourselves with these issues. So that does make me think that they're not interested in um, in winning elections. Yeah. Uh, Dave, I think you'd have to confiscate their smartphones if you were going to do that, to be brutally honest with you. Yeah, this is it. It's, the whole point is, you know, in the same way that, you know, people who are really into drum and bass or people who are really into classical music or, you know, whatever, or people who are massive Liverpool fans or Arsenal fans, they're not going to, you know, stop supporting their team or, or their hobby just because it's, it's impractical for them or just because the team's suddenly gone a bit crap. You know, that's who they are. That's the whole point, right? It's a massive part of their carefully created existence, right? Mm. So indeed, just because it might um, be, seem a bit obnoxious, it might be counterproductive, it might not be effective, it doesn't mean they're going to stop doing it because it's, who, it, it's, a, it's a part of who they are rather than trying to win elections. I've, I've noticed with these hobbyist lefts, and please feel free to correct me if it's just me with my chip on my shoulder, but these people do seem to be contemptuous of white working class people. Is that a fair assumption to make or am I being 
unnecessarily harsh. Come on, mate, that's unfair. We all are. <laughs> well, so I think there's a couple of things there, right? I mean, firstly, there are plenty of white working class people who are really left wing, right? You know, I mean, there's not mm. many of them, but you know, they do exist, right? So plenty yeah. of white working class people are really radical on, say, I don't know, race, gender, sexuality, whatever. So firstly, those people exist. Secondly, I think absolutely some of these people are. Yeah, some of these people are openly contemptuous and hatred of, of white working class people, as we saw with the, uh, you know, in Bristol. Um, with the thing that was put up in, in um, after the Colson statue was taken down, right? Oh. This big fat guy in a vest in a bin clearly reeks of sort of class hatred and, and a particular kind of class hatred as well. So those people do exist. But also there are people who steadfastly refuse to acknowledge that, um, you know, there is a correlation between class and education uh, and, and certain political views and, 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 in fact, a broader culture. There are plenty of people who say, how dare you imply that lots of white working class men, you know, are, are skeptical about immigration. Actually, you know, I grew up in the arse. It, it becomes like that Monty Python, like um, free auction sketch or four, mm. however many auction it was. You know, I grew up in the arse end of nowhere, you know, and, and my dad told me about how much he loved immigrants and how much he hated uh, capital punishment and thought paedophiles should be go to, you know, special education centers, not prison. <laughs> so you have this almost like um, Dutch, auction, Dutch auction of, you know, I came from nowhere, I'm dead working class me, and yet my whole family love immigrants. So you also have that section as well. And I think they're the real problem, actually. They are the real problem because they can't seem to admit that just because some people who have impeccable working class credentials are indeed very radical in all these issues, as I say. And just because their family may have been like that doesn't mean that that's what most people are like. And despite, const you know, several, uh, um, you know, not just opinion polls uh, and, you know, the best-selling newspapers and all the rest of it, but constant election results seeming to tell them, no, this is not how it is, actually. They can't seem to just accept or concede, okay, sure, you know, some people with impeccable working class roots are very politically radical. Most aren't on these issues. Fine. We'll find a way around that to win elections anyway and implement our stuff anyway. They just refuse to concede it. Uh, David, and I wanted to ask before we, we move on to maybe talking about what a positive vision of the left might look like, uh, just in terms of wh where are you coming at it from? Where are you politically? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, uh, probably unlike most of the people you have on the show, I'm pretty consistently left wing on all sorts of issues, actually. Yeah, I'm not happy with the smear at all, mate. We, we get lots of left wingers on the show, uh, just not woke people. And the only reason for that is, is that they won't come on the show because they don't like debating their ideas. Uh, but yeah, anyway, carry on. Yeah, that, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I mean, it depends what you mean by woke, right? But for me, I would say woke is it's like hobbyist idea, right? It's where yeah. it's the identity itself rather than actual policies that you believe. In, right? mm. So, yeah, I'm pretty left wing across the board, obviously on economics, but also on, you know, I don't know, race, immigration, gender, LGBT, all this stuff. But I recognize that this is because of my privilege to use a word that you might not like. You know, <laughs> I recognize that this is, you know, look at, look at all the fucking books behind me. You know, I recognize this is because I went to a certain university and I have a PhD and I have this fancy pants life in London and all the rest of it. Okay, sure. I haven't got a full time job, but, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well for myself and I'm never going to be, you know, uh, it, it, so many of these issues. Um, which might cause people to be more skeptical on these issues. For example, you know, many feminists who genuinely uh, are worried about, um, you know, not trans women, but men, basically, men pretending to be trans women to get access to their changing rooms or, or something like that. You know, plenty of these women have these beliefs, uh, you know, completely genuinely, and they're not bigots, they're not transphobes, they honestly have these beliefs, right? Now, that's not something that's ever going to affect me, right? It, it will literally never affect me as a man. Likewise, I don't, you know, what happens with Israel and Palestine, literally, I mean, my wife's Israeli, actually, so it doesn't away. But, you know, me personally, you know, it has no effect on me, right? Again, you know, I probably could live and work anywhere in the world, frankly, so I don't care about immigration. You know, I'm going to be the immigrant, right? So this is the thing, even though I'm very left-wing on all these issues, I at least have the sort of self-awareness to recognize why I'm so consistently left-wing on all these issues. It's because I don't have to worry about them. It's because I've got a really good education. It's because I have a you know, fairly fancy-pants lifestyle in London. And I think this, this is the thing. So many people who are like me politically don't seem to have this sort of self-awareness to realize, you know, this is why I have these opinions, because it's perfectly safe for me to have them. I have no skin in the game, as it were.
That's a really curious thing, though, mm. because I'm I'm just interested in terms of your own psychology, just on the, to get my head around it. So you say you recognize that your opinions are based on having the privilege of not having to essentially to deal with the consequences, right? Is, is that fair or is that unfair? It's, see, it's not something to deal with the consequences because I don't know what the consequences would be, right? So, well, I mean, you say you're left wing on the, let's just take the trans issue, for example, right? So you, you're, you are on the kind of new left of that issue. Is that? Yeah, it's, it's difficult, right? I mean, definitely, I'm, um, you know, I think, you know, fair play, trans women are women, trans men are men, et cetera. Where I stand on self ID is a bit difficult because yeah, that's, that's a, you know, if someone can literally say without having had, you know, any hormone treatment, any operations, without having had, you know, anything from a, from a doctor or anything to say, yes, I am a man or I am a woman. That's very difficult for me to endorse that. But again, as a man, as a cis man, it's never going to affect me. You know what I mean? It's so, it's almost like I don't, I don't have a dog in that fight. I don't have skin in the game. So okay. you know, on the one hand, it's, it's difficult for me to, to have a, a concrete opinion on it. Um, I don't All right. I, I, I don't want to delve into the specifics of that issue. I'm not trying to pin you to the wall or anything. I'm just trying to understand. So let's take the immigration issue, for example. Because of who you are and how you live, uh, the impact of immigration is likely to be positive on your life or have no effect at all, right? That, I think that would be fair to say. But but equally, you recognize that there are lots of people for whom that isn't true. Yeah. Right? So does that not affect your position on immigration? Because I, I suppose the truth is that it's also true for me. Like, I, th- more immigration into Britain doesn't make my life particularly worse, and maybe in some ways it benefits my life, right? But but I am quite firm on immigration personally because I recognize the impact it has on the country as a whole, and I recognize that there are some people whose lives are very, very badly affected by uncontrolled mass immigration. Uh, communities are destroyed. There's a lot of displacement. Uh, people feel like uh, society changes faster than they can cope with. Uh, it's something that they feel they've had no input in, etc. Right. So while my position is that I personally am not affected, or I'm affected positively, I can see that the consequences, and which is why I take the overall view that we need to control immigration quite carefully. Um, so, so what's the difference between you and I? I'm just genuinely curious, trying to understand. Well, see, the thing is that in terms of the immigration question, uh, you know, the, the numbers are behind the more immigration sceptical route, right? I mean, you know, obviously you saw with the Brexit referendum, um, okay, certain disingenuous Brexiteers like Daniel Hannan or whatever said, oh, you know, we're not anti-immigration. We're just going to replace Europeans or like Indians and people like that and think, yeah, well, let's see what happens with so many Brexit voters if that happens, right? But, mm. You know, the numbers are there with, with the immigration. I mean, we've had, you know, 10 years of conservative governments, uh, almost, you know, six years, sorry, five, the last four of those years have been someone who's become prime minister because they're riding this sort of, you know, Brexit anti-immigration wave. So that's an issue where I don't think people need my help or my defense, right? You know, the numbers are there with the sort of anti-immigration camp. So, yeah, there are absolutely plenty of people who feel uh, either through economic reasons or cultural reasons or whatever, that immigration is uh, is difficult for their life and has consequences for their life. And fortunately for them, they've got, you know, a conservative government that is, you know, willing to listen to them uh, to a certain degree anyway, right? They have numerical uh, clout, right? They have democratic clout. Um, the people who don't have any democratic clout are the people who are saying, like, let's abolish borders. Let's just have no borders. <laughs> the problem is these arseholes who say, let's have no borders, whilst they have so little clout and, and don't really represent anyone. They they do sort of have a lot of clout specifically on the left, right? You know, mm-hmm. and they do create this image on the left for the ordinary person. Oh, that's what the left's about, right? So, you know, I think on so many issues, sort of small C conservative issues, that's where the vast majority of the population are. Not least, by the way, plenty of, you know, black and Asian Britons uh, mm-hmm. who are very, you know, small C conservative on so many issues. So, I don't really think that those people need my help, if you like. You know, I think there's a perfectly good Conservative Party for that. And, you know, there's also like the possibility of a new Brexit Party style um, startup. So I don't think they need my help. So just to go back to your earlier question, I think there's there's two different things which might explain maybe like the slight disconnect between, you know, how I actually feel and what I might advocate. Right. So on the one mm. hand, it is consequences. Yeah, it is because because I don't have skin in the game on, on certain issues. I can afford to have a more abstract, theoretical, you know, university seminar room view on these things. 
But it's not just that. I think it's also because, you know, I also feel this way in many ways on things where there are no consequences one way or the other, like patriotism, for example. Right now, you know, you remember years ago, uh, Emily Formbury and she tweeted that picture from from Rochester. I mean, horrific thing, for, and, and also such a stupid thing for any politician to do. Right? Does she not think there might be consequences to this? And then poor old Ed Miliband got asked, you know, oh, what do you think when you see the England flag? And you have to go pride. You know, just say, come on, Ed Miliband. You, know, you would you would never be seen dead draping an England flag from your house or your van. You know, it does not make you feel pride. And that's fine. Do you reckon Ed Miliband has got a van? <laughs> exactly. You know, exactly. I don't think he's I'm ever never, been near a van, mate. The idea. I'd love to see him just driving around yeah. in with his copy of The Sun as bacon. Buddy. He can't eat a bacon yeah. sandwich, mate, let alone drive a van. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So this is it, you know what I mean? So there's no way Ed Miliband would ever be seen dead um, mm. you know, with an England flag from his house. And, you know, fair play, right? That's completely fine. He doesn't have to, really. He's Labour leader. So, but on that issue, again, you know me, I mean, I'm from Liverpool and lots of people from Liverpool have real difficulties with, with English nationalism and English patriotism as well. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that doesn't really necessarily have any consequences. But I only realise that I have these opinions the way I would never have an England flag from my house is because, well, firstly, I'm from Liverpool and that's a thing as well. But also, yeah, because of my education and because of my, you know, my sort of position and stuff like that, right? So it's not necessarily just on issues where there might be consequences for other people and not for me. But, you know, it's also things where I am maybe demographically different from your average Briton. And therefore, I recognize that I will have views that are different from your average Briton. But I appreciate that and I can come to terms with it. And I think a huge problem is that so many people on the left, like me, with my sort of, uh, you know, uh, background in terms of education and position right now, just refuse to admit this, like refuse, refuse to consider that they are not representative of the average person. And... Doesn't the 2019 election <laughs> give them any kind of message? You'd think that, wouldn't you? You would really think that, you know, but this is it. There's no, if you look back at just history, right? Because even things that went on the very, very, I mean, Labour before Tony Blair had only ever won two working majorities, right? 1945 and 1966. It won a few of our elections in addition to them, but with very slender majorities of like under 10 or around 12, something like that. So, if you look at history, Labour hardly ever, 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 ever wins. When Labour has won, like in 45 and 66 in Tony Blair's time, it's done. It's been very careful. It's worked really hard to deal with these negative images that people have of, of left-wing mm. politics. It's been very sophisticated in its messaging. It's rode, you know, the Second World War, like in 1945, and it's used that to its advantage. And none of that has ever made certain people on the left think, Hmm, maybe our ideas aren't popular. <laughs> so I was really thinking that one good thing that might have come about, uh, out of the 2019 election is that maybe for some people on the left, they would wake up to the fact that, okay, sure, some of our economic ideas are popular, great, but all the other stuff really isn't. And actually, if we want to implement some of this other stuff, we just need to be a bit quiet about it and be a bit less obnoxious. But not, you know, not a bit of it, right? They didn't even draw breath. No sooner had the so-called red wall fallen instead of actually this leading certain people on the left to think you know what maybe the northern working class aren't the sort of you know hipsters in hackney that we imagine them to be no sooner had that happened you have the likes of nabara saying these people aren't the real working class you know the real working class are ma students in uh, in brighton and hackney and you know so this is the problem right you know it, they didn't even miss a beat I've, i think i mean i didn't watch it but i believe after the exit poll came out on election night, the likes of Ashtar Kar and Ambastani were having this, uh, you know, podcast or whatever or something like that, where they were, you know, talking about what's going on next. And again, they didn't have this sort of period of shit, you know, maybe everything we believe is bollocks, you know. They didn't have this period of, you know, quiet contemplation. They were straight on the air talking nonsense. And again, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the, um, the argument has been that actually, these people uh, who, you know, voted Tory aren't really working class, you know. The real working class are the people who already vote Labour. So I don't think there will ever be uh, a sort of empirical uh, way of, of causing these people to, to ever think, oh, no, maybe we should just try another tack. And Dave, I mean, let's cut to the chase here, right? We, we've been talking about, you know, this, this faction of the left, the fact that Labour haven't won for 10 years, even though you look at the, the government under Theresa May, who were pretty much useless, one of the most hated prime ministers there's ever been. 
Is the Labour Party fit for purpose? Because I don't think it is anymore, if I'm being brutally honest. I mean, it's it's really difficult to say, isn't it? Um, I think definitely, no matter who... Beca- and this is what so many people have been saying, uh, you know, anti-Starmer people in the Labour Party. Mm. Oh, why isn't Starmer... Do- why isn't Labour doing better in the polls? It's it's always been really difficult for Labour to, to win elections in this country and get into power. Always, like for the 120 years of, of its history. Um, it's It's much more difficult now, given what's happened in Scotland, uh, etc., given what's happened in England, actually, over the past sort of uh, 15 years with the Labour vote. Um, it depends what you mean to be fit for purpose, right? So if we consider it to its first purpose to be clause one of the Labour constitution, which is to get into power, right, to acquire mm. political power in Parliament. It, it's trying to be under Starmer. You know, they are trying now to go back down that route of actually giving a damn about where most people are and what actually might win elections. Whereas, yeah, clearly for the previous... Um, sort of uh, four years, it didn't seem to give much of a damn about that. But yeah, it's going to really struggle. And But just because it's going to really struggle, this doesn't necessarily mean that it's not fit for purpose. I I completely take the point that many of, I mean, when we consider what the Labour Party was founded to do and what it was meant to represent, in many ways, it doesn't necessarily represent that. But of course, you know, demographics have changed, people have changed, right? So I read a brilliant book recently by Claire Ainsley called The New Working Class. I believe Claire Ainsley is, uh, I think, either uh, Keir Starmer's chief of staff or someone pretty high up in his operation. Mm. And she makes the point that, you know, the working class very much still exists. Uh, It looks slightly different to what it was 70 years ago. But interest, and you might hear some like, you know, Corbyn Easter's going, yeah, you tell him, Claire. But actually, the point is they care about the same things that the traditional working class cared about. You know, they care about family. They care about their community. They care about patriotism and their country, right? Whether they be uh, white, brown, black, whatever. They mm-hmm. care about these issues. Um, so, yeah, the, the Labour Party can still have a role to play. And I think definitely under Keir Starmer, it's coming back to that role. Whether it can win elections, however, yeah, that's that's definitely a difficult thing to say. I've got no idea if it can, because right now it doesn't look as though that's going to happen anytime soon. But isn't that fundamentally dangerous for democracy? Don't we effectively have a, have a, a one-party state where it's a, where it's the Conservatives winning time and time and time again? And it doesn't matter how crap and useless they are. Like Boris Johnson, we can all accept now, is crap. He doesn't have the ideas. He's absolutely bungled the last few months. But it doesn't matter because Starmer isn't going to win. So what's the point? Sorry, I'm getting angry. No, it's not a f- hey, fair enough. This is a f- you know infuriating situation, especially given all the stuff you've just been talking about, right? The, the Tories' record in government over the past ten years—they're they're handing or bu- bundling, bungling, bungling, sorry, bungling rather than mm. handling of this pandemic. Yeah, it, it's infuriating both in terms of what they've done, what they've been able to get away with, and the way it looks as though there's no end in sight. And absolutely, I think that is a problem for democracy, but it's not necessarily a problem of the Labour Party's uh, creation, at least not the current Labour Party, right? So it's other things. It's things like the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, right, which says mm. there's not going to be an election for, you know, another four years. It's things like first-past-the-post, which mean that actually, which means, sorry, that, you know, it, it's not really even about uh, the numbers that you get necessarily. It's about where the voters are, Right. Um, it's about things like uh, the media. Again, you know, the fact that so much of the of the print media is ridiculously hostile to any Labour leader, even if they're quite anodyne one like Tony Blair or even poor old Ed Miliband, you know. So, yeah, I think there's there's a huge problem here. Again, and if you look at so much of the uh, media, and I include Sky News and to a certain extent the BBC as well, when you look at um, their coverage of Boris Johnson and his handling of the pandemic. I think there you can say they need to get the tongue out of his arse, really. They need to be more critical, especially, as you say, when the Tories have been in power for 10 years and it doesn't look as though there's any serious threat of the opposition taking over. Maybe the media could do better to, um, you know, to criticise the Tories. So, yeah, I completely take the point about uh, Labour weakness being a problem for democracy in this country, but there's many other problems, like such as the voting system, uh, you know, and, and the media and so on. Well, it's interesting. The media thing always comes up whenever I talk to people on the left, and they always have the perception, I think, that, um, you know, the the institutions of the media are in hock with the the conservative establishment, whereas I think a lot of people on the right feel that hashtag defund the BBC, it's gone super woke, uh, you know, it's been so diversity obsessed, everyone from minority backgrounds now actually overrepresented there you know i appear on the bbc quite regularly my experience of it is that it's super woke 
right? Um, so, and I'm not even on the right. And it's interesting, you know, I, I that's find not really, what everybody says, mate. <laughs> well, it, and actually, that was the point that I was just going to make because I, I'm really enjoying this conversation with you, David, because you you, you made the, the the suggestion that a lot of our guests are are right of center, and I would argue that you are precisely the sort of person that is actually quite common on our show. Uh, I mean, you, you know, you're probably to the left of people like Andrew Doyle in the sense of your position on trans or whatever, but you're the, exactly the sort of person that says the left needs to do better, uh, and then the, the far left goes, well, this guy is on the right, he's got an Israeli wife, case closed, he's a Nazi, <laughs> right? So, so this is, I think, one of the problems is that... Uh, the, our definition of what's on the left is changed a lot. You know, Andrew's a socialist, for example. I don't know if you're familiar with Andrew Doyle, right? But he, he people say that he's on the right. People say that Francis is on the right. People say that I'm on the right. So there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of kind of, I think both sides are, are tempted to say the media is on the other team's side. You know, anyone who's not with us is against us. Uh, do you find that as you make the critique of the left that you've made that a lot of people want to just dismiss you because uh, of your wife's background or whatever else it might be? Well, I mean, yeah, it's more that I'm, I'm critiquing the left and, mm. you know, I'm critiquing you from the left. Say, well, why don't you talk about the right? And I say, well, there's plenty of people doing that, right? You know, there's, there's no shortage of talking heads and journalists and activists and academics who are going to lay into Boris Johnson and Trump. And great, you know, I hate Trump, I hate Johnson, but pff, who cares? I mean, yeah, I don't want to... It amazes me the way so many people simply want to read opinions which they already have or, or see opinions that they already have given straight back to them, right? You know, I already think that Johnson and Trump are tosses. The question is, what can we do about it? Like, can we actually do anything about it? Why do people vote for them? You know, how can we get rid of them? These are the questions that I'm interested in. Uh, and this is, what you know, what, what I'm about. But it seems that so many people on the left think that if you're asking those questions, rather than just saying for the hundredth time, Trump and Johnson, Johnson are scum. That yeah, you're some you're some kind of traitor, really, you know, and that's a problem. But mm. when it comes to the media, I suppose it depends, right? So obviously, the BBC, through the nature of the sort of people who work at the BBC, right, you know, from the top down, being you know overwhelmingly university graduates and, and fairly elite university graduates at that, being overwhelmingly white, being overwhelmingly middle class, obviously they're going to have certain opinions, which on cultural issues are going to skew left, absolutely. But on other issues, like, I don't know, the economy, for example, or, uh, you know, what should a prime minister, what is prime ministerial, you know, what is competence? Mm. Then actually on those issues, they might be either pretty centrist or pretty right wing, right? Mm. And again, yeah. social, definitely social media, um, what well, depends on where you look on social media, but certain elements of social media are completely dominated by the left. But so what? Who cares? You know, it's completely powerless. It doesn't do anything. So is this, and, and this is a big problem for the left, actually, in that it seems that in certain areas, the left or wokeness, if you like, is dominant. But really, these areas aren't powerful and it doesn't have much of an effect. Uh, it's an interesting point you make about the BBC, because I suppose, given the nature of our show, what we have focused on at the moment is pr primarily what you might call the culture war. So if you look at the BBC through the prism of the culture war, you go, well, on the cultural issues, the BBC is massively left wing. Whereas, as you point out, maybe on economics, that isn't quite as true. So, I, yeah, I see I see what you're saying. But look, we've got about 10, 15 minutes left. And I've really, really genuinely enjoyed our conversation. I have to say, and Francis is nodding as well. It's really a pleasure to talk to someone who's, um, you know, you are certainly more to the left than many of our guests, I would say. Uh, at least it seems that way, which is great. It's fantastic. We, we love to have to have these conversations. So let's use the last 10, 15 minutes to talk about a positive vision of what the left might be, because I'll give you this example. We were sitting around having dinner the other day uh, with for me, Francis, Anton, our producer, uh, and a few of our uh, of our friends. And we were talking about Paul Embry, who we mentioned, who is a socialist trade union member, but pro-Brexit, who we've had on the show a couple of times. And we were all saying that if he was the, the Labour leader, the chances are that all seven of us around that table would vote for Labour, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so how does Labour get back to a position, and the left more broadly perhaps, get back to a position where it can attract the votes of amazing people like us? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I've got nothing necessarily against Paul Embry, but I know that lots of people, uh, not that many people in the great scheme of things, of course, but certain people would be 
would not vote Labour if Paul Embry was in charge. Sure. But, mm. I mean, these people are numerically very small, actually. Every single one of them has got a Twitter account. Every single one of them uses it with, an, with a vengeance. But, you know, nationwide, the small people. But they do exist. Um, so, I mean, a, an example I always like to use is the Harold Wilson administration of the 1960s, right? So from 1964 to 1970, won two elections. And in that period, with Roy, Je- Roy Jenkins as the Home Secretary, they abolished the death penalty, they legalized abortion, they relaxed the divorce rules, they stopped flogging in prisons, which used to be a thing until the 60s. Uh, you've so lost confidence in me. You've lost me, mate. That's where it all went wrong. <laughs> exactly. uh, bring back the birch. Exactly. Uh, you know, they, they, de- uh, they decriminalized homosexuality. They did all of these. Uh, they also passed race relations legislation as well. They did all of these great liberal, you know, culturally left-wing, non-economic things. Uh, but of course, none of this was in the manifesto, apart from the race relations thing once. You know, they didn't, they didn't, you know, they, they weren't idiots, right? They didn't actually say, knowing full well what their voters were like as well, they didn't say, oh, we're going to say in our uh, 64 or 66 manifesto, yeah, we're going to legalize being gay, we're going to legalize abortion, we're going to abolish the death penalty. They didn't say that at all. It wasn't even official government policy, right? They just gave time for most of it anyway. They gave time to uh, private members' bills. They allowed backbenchers to sponsor this legislation. The government gave it time, uh, and, and they got it through. And I think that's a fine example of the sort of savviness, if you like, of what the left needs to do. The left needs to realize that you know, aside from the the, te- the state of the people who've been in power for the past 10 years, aside from all sorts of existential cha- uh, challenges in terms of the economy, in terms of climate change, stuff like that, aside from all of the great stuff that the left wants to do on, on various kinds of issues, economic and non-economic, if it wants to actually do that and put this stuff into practice, it's really tough, right? It's really tough to win elections. It's really tough to get into power. So it needs to just have no... Uh, sort of false assumptions. It needs to have no illusions about what the electorate is like uh, and what they need to do to get into power. But David, hold on. I'm sorry to interrupt, but if I just put my, like, if I pretend to be on the right for, for, for the purposes of this question, right, then what I'm hearing, and this is, I appreciate it's putting an uncharitable spin on what you've said, but but this is what people will hear, no doubt, is we need to lie to the electorate and trick them into accepting policies that they don't like. So I would say not at all, right? So it's not as though you need to lie in that you literally say in the manifesto, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and then do the opposite. Or okay. not put in the manifesto, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and then do it, right? Although obviously politicians could be accused of doing stuff like that uh, quite often. It's more a case of don't focus on unpopular shit, right? So mm-hmm. for example, Israel-Palestine is not an issue that uh, most people care about one way or the other. But if you obsess over Israel-Palestine, then you will attract loads of anti-Semites to your cause, of course. And, you know, you will look as though maybe you're not an anti-Semite, but maybe as though you are unduly concerned with this very, very, very small part of the world that doesn't appear to have much to do with the UK. Likewise, considering how, how few trans people are in the population, if you're always banging on about trans rights, people don't really care one way or the other, right? So you could... Move, I mean, you know, the Tories nearly introduced self-ID, I think, in, in, in Theresa May's government and stuff like that. So it's the sort of thing whereby these are issues, these not, aren't necessarily issues that elicit uh, passions, really, necessarily amongst the general population. They elicit mm-hmm. passions amongst mm-hmm. a very small group of people on, on both sides. But it's not really the sort of thing that people care about. If you had a Labour government which was doing important things on the economy, on the NHS, on education, on housing, for God's sake, you know, if you can, if 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 you had a, a Labour government which was achieving results in all of these spheres, very, very, very few people would give a damn. If you also try to advance some of the more niche concerns of you know eccentrics on university campuses and on Twitter, and it wouldn't really be about lying to the electorate. Mm. In the same way that the Wilson governments didn't lie to the electorate. You know, they had cross-party consensus for what they were doing. And, and I'm slightly contradicting what I said earlier about, you know, how uh, for 50 or 60 years after the death penalty was abolished, there was actually majoritarian support in favour of the death penalty. Mm. But clearly not enough people actually cared about this, right? Yeah. Not enough people actually cared about this issue to to make the Tories, for example, shift to the right. Yeah, like if you ask them, they'll say they're in favour of the death penalty, but they're not going to go on a march to to execute people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So basically what you're saying is 
if the left focused on big issues that most people care about, if they if they had economic policies that were front and center of their agenda and they were not sidelined by marginal issues, which seem crazy to most people, you know, if so if they delivered on that, they could afford then to slip in a few little things like, you know, being tough on Jews and tough on the causes <laughs> of Jews or whatever else it might be. <laughs> well, um, they could afford on, say, to reevaluate Britain's foreign policy priorities, right? So in terms of, you know, our relationship with America, which has not been yeah. very good for mm. Britain or for, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan and stuff like this, mm. uh, you know, and things like that, for example, right? Mm. And, and things that lots of people will support. I mean, sorry to, you know, go off on a little tangent here, but one of the things about Corbyn, which, you know, makes me think this is, he's emblematic of this hobbyist left tendency, is, you know, how hard would it have been for him to sing along gustily at the cenotaph, you know, and how hard would it have been for him uh, in the aftermath of the uh, Skripal poisonings to say, yeah, Russia, the scumbag, you know, to, to just go through with this almost performative, yet, you know, being a politician, going longer, going yeah, And then actually, if you got into power, then you could defund the monarchy, say, or whatever, you know, mm. or you could try to sort of um, have, have anti-monarchical policies that you could get away with. Then you could actually, if you wanted to, uh, you know, reorientate Britain's foreign policy, uh, you know, away from maybe a sort of instinctively sort of anti-Russian pro-American stance. But this is it. He just couldn't even, he wouldn't even do that. You know, he wouldn't even go through the motions of singing God Save the Queen, uh, you know, and, and just being sort of, oh yeah, the Russians are clearly behind this poisoning. So this is the thing. I'm not saying that this would actually win Labour elections, but at least we'd have a fighting chance if we, you know, could, could do these things. And definitely, I think, you know, this country needs a Labour government, I would say so. Uh, but, you know, even Francis would say whether it needs a Labour government or not, it definitely needs opposition, right? It definitely needs mm -hmm. it to be a credible, uh, op you know, uh, opposition. And, but, and Dave, you say all these things and you're talking, I mean, look, we've been talking about the left for what? 55 minutes, the first time we've even mentioned the housing crisis. To me, that is absolutely... Exactly. Absolutely, yeah. This is, it's this ridiculous. Is a, and, and this is the thing that, you know, compared to, say, uh, sort of uh, political debates programmes of, like, 40, 50 years ago, right? If you look on YouTube of debates in the 70s, it's all about, like, trade union rights. It's all about taxation. It's all about these sorts of issues. And, okay, yeah, sure, they talk about foreign policy and, and, and sort of cultural stuff as well. But it's about the, the great yeah. economic issues of the day. And this is the thing, you know, it's almost as though on the one hand, there's there's obviously far more consensus now on economic issues uh, mm. than there used to be decades ago. And I've, this included when Corbyn was Labour leader, by the way, there was still more um, consensus on economic issues than there had been in the past. Uh, but also it's because of the sort of people who are on the left now, you know, the sort of people who are really at the sharp end of the housing crisis, say, and I don't mean people like me who have to pay through the nose for flats that they can't really afford. I mean people on the streets. I mean families mm. who are forced to stay in B&Bs, right? I mean those sorts of people. Mm. They're not on the left. You know, they're not uh, going to CLP meetings. They're not going on marches. They're not, you know, on social media making arseholes of themselves. So this is the thing, right? It, it's not only that there seems to be economic issues seem to have faded to abeyance to a certain extent, that there's much more of a consensus than there used to be. But there's also that the sort of people on the left has completely shifted. It's not the people who really need economic change now who are the loudest voices and the most prominent mm. people on the left. It's people who are actually doing pretty all right, actually. I mean, you you talk about these things. And like, like I said, we talk about housing. First time we've talked about it in, in an hour's interview, which again is ridiculous. And you talk about this need for the left to embrace these ideas, take on these challenges, fundamentally change its outlook. And I'm sitting here and I'm going, you know what, that sounds great, but it ain't going to fucking happen. Why is that? Well, this is it. And like I said, Because you're a cynical bastard, that's why. <laughs> Believe. Believe. Anything is possible, Francis. If you looked at what, as you said before, like, you know, the, the, the December 2019 general election, you'd think that for certain people this would be mm. a wake-up call, but not a bit of it, right? But I think under Keir Starmer, and not just, I mean, you know, not just him, but some of the people behind him as well, like Claire Ainsley, who I, who I mentioned earlier, a lot of these people are very sensible. Uh, mm. By sensible, I mean people like they, they care about winning elections and they're concerned mm. with that. They're concerned with what is possible, with what they can, with what they should present to the public. So I honestly do think that the Starmer regime, whilst it uh, quite sensibly makes all kinds of gestures one way or the other. So, for example, Starmer and Angela Rayner both took a knee. 
for Black Lives Matter. And again, horrific photo op, I thought, really pathetic. But again, this is the sort of um, left-wing performativity that can be good, actually, right? Because Starmer doing that then gives him breathing space to say, I didn't approve of, uh, whilst the Colson statue should have come down, I didn't approve of the manner in which it happened, which, of course, is where most people are, by the way. So this is it. I think Starmer is showing really good promise in that he knows what to do in terms of symbolism and in terms of um, performativity to keep certain groups happy. But he's also got his eyes firmly on the prize and hopefully knows what it takes to win elections. Mm. Well, he's certainly better better than his predecessor. You can definitely say that. And look, the thing the thing that I get from our conversation is that actually there's so many issues. I mean, Francis brings up the housing crisis. Him and I talk about it every time we meet in London. We look around us and we go, "There's something seriously wrong with this country," because the streets are full of people. We went. Uh, we were in Trafalgar Square a couple of weeks ago, and. There are queues of hundreds of people just standing there to get food in Trafalgar Square, in the center in, of our capital, one of the biggest and most wealthy cities in the world. Um, there are people in the basically tents springing up all over all over the streets of London for homeless people. There's a problem. And I, I don't believe that the majority of the people of this country are, are, are content with that. I think that there's that there's an overwhelming majority of people in this country who don't want that to be the case and who would want those people to be helped and who would want them to be looked after, whether it's mental health support, whether it's housing, whatever it might be. Uh, I think there is a consensus for all those things. But the problem is that, you know, you, the left has to get a shit together, which is one of the reasons that you've been criticizing them, I imagine. And this is one of the reasons that we've been talking to people who are critical because we want them to do better. That's not to say that I'm I'm in the center. I'm kind of I voted for pretty much every party within the mainstream uh, throughout my life. I used to vote Lib Dem for God's sake, right? Um, or you, you're pulling a face at me. You vote Labour, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I actually I voted for Corbyn at some point. You know, so my point is, I suspect most of the country is about where I am, which is bang in the center, and if people in the Labour Party were to get their shit together, they might find that they're even with the loss of Scotland, which is a problem, of course, they could win the country back over if they just stop focusing on all this stupid stuff that, that's very divisive and, and frankly, where the country is absolutely not with them. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, this is this is absolutely the message of my book. And, you know, someone said to me once, oh, why don't you write a book about the right? I think, well, the right's doing pretty well for itself, frankly. You know, I mean, the right doesn't need any, mm. uh, you know, uh, critique or, or, or criticism or help now. It's been doing pretty well for the past 10 years, at least. So, yeah, I completely agree with that. You know, the, the thing, the I mean, I, you know, I remember that those of us who were alive, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we can literally remember having seen with our own eyes, the streets did not look like that, the way no. they do now in London no. and Liverpool and Manchester and any big cities, the proliferation no. of homeless people, the, 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 the existence of food banks, you know, did, weren't, didn't really exist at all 10 years ago, as far as I'm aware. You know, people can see the evidence of this with their own eyes. Um, and, and this is, again, a problem, I think, in that, you know, the left used to be about common sense. Right. The mm. left used to be saying it is not right that some people are extremely rich and other people will go hungry and have no home. It is not right that, you know, white people have to these things, but some people don't because of the color of their skin. That was really sem simple and, and, and sort of feed it off people's common sense. Now, lots of people on the on the left say, ah, well, common sense is a social construct. You know, haven't you read Gramsci? And yeah, obviously, <laughs> social, common sense is a social construct. But what what? What relevance does that have to politics? Right? It doesn't, you know, that, that is an, an academic seminar room observation to say that common sense is a social construct. You know, we need mm. to, okay, say, fine, we can agree with that, but what, how is that going to affect our election strategy, right? So this is it. Absolutely, people are, are fed up and angry. And, and, and I think also this whole A-level fiasco is another nail maybe not in the Tories' coffin, but definitely in, in the Johnson uh, government's coffin. I mean, this is going to be a big problem for them further down the line, I think, in the same way that the, the uh, coronavirus death toll and possible uh, depression might be. So there's definitely an appetite for change, absolutely 100%. And I honestly think that whilst you know, Labour has all sorts of uh, disadvantages at election time, if the last Labour, um, you know, uh, 
election campaign was led by somebody who didn't have all of Corbyn's baggage and didn't have all of this sort of, you know, voter repellent ideology on so many issues. You know, the, the poll done immediately afterwards for people who didn't vote Labour, why didn't you vote Labour, right? Number one by a country mile, Corbyn, the leader. Number two, Brexit. And then only number three was, I don't know, policies on a manifesto or something like that, right? Mm. So I think people are desperate for change. Uh, but so many of the people who are most desperate for change up and down the country, as we saw in these red wall seats, it's not as though these red wall seats voted Tory because they've had this spurge of affluence uh, over the past mm. 10 years. Now they're becoming all middle class. Not at all, right? If anything, it's quite the opposite. So people are desperate for change and people would vote for a party which seems to be offering this kind of change if it could just package it in a voter-friendly package. That's a really, really, really uh, salient and brilliant point. And unfortunately, it's not going to fucking happen. But there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, you've been absolutely brilliant, Dave. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you for being uh coming on and talking about the left and being a left-wing guest and uh trying to uh cleanse our reputation for being alt-right nazis and all the rest of it so thank you very much for that that's not going to happen he's just going to become one of us now that's all absolutely mate so yeah uh yeah well you're already halfway there you're you're marrying an israeli lady so yeah (laughs) you've got one foot in the door uh but dave we always end our our shows with uh the same question which is uh what is the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be yeah. Oh, as a society. So, ooh, yeah. So, as a society, that's interesting because I don't know about as a society. I think something in politics really mm. is that a lot of people, say black people, Asian people, gay people, women, uh, are often really right wing, right? And I think this is going to be the issue in politics over the next hundred years. The way uh, the last election almost completed the uh, Tories making massive inroads into the, into the traditional working class. That I. I think the big political thing of the next century will be the Tories winning over loads of Asian votes, loads of black votes. They're already doing it with British Indians. I think they're going to be doing it with them. You know, I mean, so many, uh, say, uh, p- uh, British people from an African background are like Norman Tebbit or Margaret Thatcher's ideal people. Like they are proper, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, you know, it's all about hard graft and personal responsibility. These people are really right wing in many ways. And if the Tory party can just shake its well-deserved reputation for racism, a lot of these people are going to be going over to the Tories in the next few decades. So not really a social thing necessarily, more of a political thing. But I think this is one thing that nobody's talking about. You know, the left always goes on about, you know, um, these groups of like women, gays, disabled people. God knows why they think disabled people are so left-wing, you know, by the way, you know, but whatever. So I think this is the thing that we're going to see over the next few decades. Lots of people from these these groups that the left is trying to put into this rainbow coalition are going to become more and more right-wing. Fascinating stuff. David, listen, I have to say, we genuinely really, really enjoyed the conversation. We'd love to get you back at some point as well to chat more about this sort of stuff. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on. The book is absolutely fantastic. I recommend that everybody gets it, a left for itself. Uh, And uh, where should people follow your ramblings online if if, if there's such an opportunity? I'm on Twitter at DavidSwift87. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much. Nice one. Although I've got to be honest with you, whenever I talk about the left, I get get just really angry. Anyway, it's fine. <laughs> Mate, you just haven't eaten for about 45 minutes. That's all that's <laughs> yeah. happened there. We'll get a burger down. You. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Anyway, my, my, my the, I'm seeing this. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't talk. <laughs> they just so get me so angry. angry. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to shut up. We're going to let's end the episode so I can go and kick something. All right. Fantastic stuff, guys. Thank you so much for watching. Make sure you get the book. It's absolutely brilliant. A left for itself. And we'll see you very soon with another live stream or another interview. 7 p.m. UK time every day, except Mondays. We've got something for everybody. See you very soon. Take care, guys. See you soon.